If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one right in the pew back in front of you. One of those red books there. You can turn to page 553. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke. Third book in the New Testament. Turn to uh, uh, Luke 17. We're going to look at verses 7 to 10, a passage that we've looked at uh, last month. And we're going to be resurrecting it again today as we begin a new uh, series. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this series shortly, but Pastor Tom and I would like to uh, put a brief pause in our uh, series in the Gospel of Luke by ironically speaking from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Um, But really, uh, I want to take a moment in Luke 17 and then widen our eyes to what we're seeing in that chapter so that we can begin a new series that I will delineate at the end of this message here today. Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. Would you, would you stand with me as we read this together? Luke 17, 7 to 10. Once again, this is a passage that you might recall from uh, last month in, the, uh, in late March. We took a look at it. Today we're going to look at it a second time, this time with a little bit more context and a lead-in to what we'll be looking at in the next number of weeks and uh, probably two months here at Coast Bible Church. Luke 17, verses 7 to 10 is a parable of Jesus, Jesus telling a story. He says, In which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and sit down to eat but will he not rather say to him prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink Does he, the master, thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say to yourself, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. You may be seated. Some context to this parable, this story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. The context that is is really critical to the understanding of this parable has to go back a little bit, back to verse 3. So look back at the start of Luke 17, all the way to verse 3 there, and you're going to see in verse 3 that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the 12 apostles, and he's giving them... uh, Various teachings on how to live, how to carry out the Christian life, a life that is following Jesus Christ, the Master. And this is what he says in verse 3, something that he teaches the disciples that really, as, as they hear it, as they receive it, it kind of boggles their mind. And this is what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. 
It's really a breathtaking teaching there. Imagine uh, in your marriage or uh, at work interacting with a coworker, and, and, and in that relationship, someone uh, comes up to you and, and uh, they lie to you in the morning. They say a little lie. You're like, you lied to me. And they say, oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And you say, oh, okay, sure. And then a couple hours go by and they, and they lie to you again. Your spouse lies to you or a coworker lies to you. You're looking at them like, you just lied to me again. Oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Okay. Another hour goes by and they lie to you again. And by this time you're looking at them like, what's wrong with you? Why are you lying all the time? What did I do to you? Why are you lying to me? But they come back to you again and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you say, oh, okay. But at this point, you're starting to, to stand a little more upright and be like, wait a minute. There's a pattern developing. I don't like it. You keep sinning against me. You keep lying to me. And then you turn around and just, you know, you, you seek my forgiveness. But I'll tell you, my, my, the, the, the rope that I can lend to you, that I can extend to you is getting shorter and shorter here. And by the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh time, you're looking at them like, okay, that's it. I'm done. How can I ever trust you again? Jesus here in Luke 17 verses 3 and 4 is suggesting that every single time your brother, and by that he means anyone you know, your friend, your spouse, your neighbor, someone you meet, if at any time your brother sins against you, Jesus says your job, your duty as a Christian, is to forgive them. That's a breathtaking teaching. Um, no, no hint, by the way, in verse 3 and 4, about the, the sincerity of their approach. No hint, by the way, of the thought that, well, they're going to say, will you forgive me? And then next time they're going to go on to live a life that's, that's a little more righteous. So this time I will extend forgiveness. No, no, no. No hint of future performance. No hint of what's going to happen down the road. Every single time your brother sins against you and they come to you and say, will you forgive me? And they repent before you. Jesus says you're to turn to them and, and, and forgive them of their sin. And the disciples hear that as we hear it. And they go, that's, that's not possible, Lord. That's not possible. If my spouse lied to me seven times a day, I couldn't forgive them. Even if they came to me on bended knee each time. That's impossible, Lord. How can we possibly live up to, to this kind of teaching? You're, you're, Jesus, you're going way too far. That's, that's, that's too, too high. It's not attainable. Seven times a day? You ask too much, Lord. You ask too much. So if, if okay, fine. If you're going to ask this of us, then you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to increase our faith. You're going to have to do something because there's no way me and my human condition can do this. So, Lord, you're going to have to do something great here. And that's what they say to him. Look at verse 5. They respond to Jesus in verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, 
They said, increase our faith. We can't do that. Increase our faith. Make it mighty. Make it great. You cannot expect this forgiveness, this lavish mercy and grace to pour from us in our present condition. We're not capable of that. It goes against every fiber fiber of our being. It's too much to ask. So if you want us to carry out this duty, Lord, then you have to increase our faith. Jesus disagrees. He says as much in verse 6. So the Lord said to the disciples, verse 6, if you have faith as a mustard seed, one of the tiniest seeds in the garden, if you have faith as a mustard seed, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would be done for you. In essence, what Jesus says there in verse 6 is, if you wish to do that which you think is impossible, you don't need great faith. All you need is simple faith that is sourced in me. If you wish to do what you think is impossible, you don't need great faith. What you need is simple faith that is sourced, that is resident, that is located, that is centered in me, Jesus says. It isn't the quantity of our faith that matters, but the quality of it. Faith that can move mountains. Faith that can forgive seven times a day. Faith that can do the impossible must simply be faith whose locus, whose center is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he's at the center, all of a sudden, I remember that it wasn't just seven times a day that he forgave me by going to the cross. It was every single one of my sins that he died for. He died for every single one of them. When Jesus is located in the center of our life, when he becomes the inflection point upon which our gaze happens upon, all of a sudden, seven times a day, that's nothing compared to what Jesus did for me. Faith that can move mountains. Faith that can forgive seven times a day. Faith that can do the impossible is faith centered in Christ. The disciples, they desired big faith. (laughs) Big faith. Great faith. And by that, their their mindset was geared straight toward uh, the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees. 
the Jewish religious leaders, and they looked upon the Pharisees like them, men of great faith who, who, with their beautiful long white robes, pray to God and and call out to him, and and they fast, and, and they show themselves to be fasting to everyone, and everyone can see their great religiosity, their great faith. We want that faith, Jesus, the disciples ask. Faith that can impress. Faith that is grandiose. There was really a measure of pride in their request. Jesus says, no, I want your faith, the focus of your gaze, the gaze of your heart, to be placed, to be resident in me source it in me and then you will see the impossible when we do this we and take what little faith we sometimes have but lay it down before the lord as an offering we show god the kind of humble disposition that he's been wanting from us all along a humble servant is one who forgives. A humble servant remembers that God has forgiven them of all things. A humble servant is a person who forgives even seven times a day, ever keeping in mind that all that they have and all that they ever will have is from God and God alone. And so what does God desire of us? Two things at the bottom of your outline. What does God desire of us? Two things here in this passage of scripture. Number one, faith, write that word down, faith that is wholly or completely sourced in the Lord and not in ourselves. Number one, what does God desire of us? Faith that is wholly sourced in the Lord and not in ourselves. And number two, he desires humility, humility, which only comes by being ever mindful of the source of all our present blessings and future hope. Humility, which only comes by being ever mindful of the source of all of our present blessings and future hope. Now with that context in mind, we come back to verse 7. Story that we've read now many times here at Coast. One more time today. And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to the servant when he's coming from the field, come at once, sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, disciples, when you have done all those things which you were commanded, say to yourself, we are unprofitable servants. We have done, and I would add we have only done, What was our duty to do? Remember, 
that Jesus is relating this story to the disciples. Comment in verse 5, where they said, increase our faith. By this comment, the disciples were all but saying to Jesus, Lord, seven times a day, come on, that's impossible. No one can forgive that much. No one is capable of such things. But Jesus, in offering this story here in Luke 17, is suggesting that such a spirit of forgiveness is nothing more than our basic duty to do as Christians, as people who have ourselves been forgiven of all things. He says it's not impossible. Jesus says it's not impossible. Quite the contrary, it's very possible. And even further than that, it's your basic duty. Source your faith in me, not in yourself. Put your pride away. Don't ask for this grandiose faith that, 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 that can be trumpeted on the street corners where the Pharisees rise up to pray. He says, don't let your... Don't ask for faith like that. That's a kind of religiosity that I don't desire, the Lord says. Source your faith in me. Put your pride away and be humble. And you can and will do what I'm asking of you. You can do it. I expect you to do it. Oh, and by the way, don't suppose I will fawn all over you. When you do it. Isn't that what it says in verse 7? And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep. Will say to him the servant when he comes in from the field. Come at once. Come at once my servant. Come at once. You've been plowing in the field all day. Oh you must be tired. You've been tending the sheep. I can see the sweat on your brow. Servant, come on in. I know I'm the master, but you come on in and sit down. Let me massage your feet. Let me serve you a savory meal. Come at once. Sit down. Eat. No. No. Jesus says. That's not what happens. He says, the thing, the thing that I'm asking from you, my servants, is basic. It's simple. It's a reflection of the immeasurable forgiveness that I've given to you, but mark this well, it is only a small reflection of the sacrifice that I did at Calvary. And when you carry out that sacrifice, when you forgive seven times a day, and by that he means forgive always, when you carry out that basic duty I'll liken this immeasurable forgiveness that you're to show to others to, to, to plowing the field or to tending sheep. And when you carry out this basic duty, know this, 
It is a small reflection, just a small one, of what I did for you. Know this, you are not repaying me or or doing me a favor. You've not somehow, by, by forgiving others, somehow completed your work. And now you can sit back and receive my undying gratitude. Verse 9. Does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, the basic, the core, the fundamental... Say to yourselves, we're still unprofitable servants. For we have merely done, we have only done what was our duty to do. Your work is not done. Keep your eyes up on me. Having your faith resident in me. Maintaining a humble posture. Your work is not done. Jump back to verse 8. But will he not say, the master, say to the servant, your work is not done. Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward, afterward, you will eat and drink. This life is about the master. It's his domain. It's his kingdom. The Lord is worthy, not us. The Lord is worthy of all glory and honor and majesty and praise, not us. He is the potter and we are the clay. We are made to serve Him. We are made to serve Him. And yet, and yet, Lest you begin to hear from me the notion that that God is some oppressive slave master who looks upon his servants and demands, demands, demands and never shows any gratitude. Lest you begin to hear in Luke 17 and in Jesus' teaching this notion that God seems like quite the taskmaster. Does he, does he have any kind of relationship with me or, or, or is this how it looks? Lest we begin to think that God is not watching what we do in his name and by his spirit and will not on the last day make note of all of those things. Turn back. To Luke 12. Look at Luke 12. It's also listed on the back of your outline, beginning in verse 31. Lest we think God is a slave driver, read with new eyes what Jesus says here in Luke 12:31. He says, But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Don't fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom so sell what you have give alms provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old because they're treasures in the heavens that do not fail where thief 
where no thief approaches, nor a moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice verse 35. So let your waist be girded, and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he, the master, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch of the night or in the third watch of the night and find them so waiting for him, blessed are those servants. What, what does Jesus do for those who exhibit faith, humility? What does he do for those who are girded and ready prepared and watchful? What does he do for those who put his kingdom first, who are building his kingdom first and not their own? Jesus says in Luke 12, at the end of the age, when this life is over, he invites them to come and recline at the banquet table. Those who have girded themselves for God's work in this earthly life. Jesus invites them. He says, come. There's a great feast. And then Jesus does something wondrous. He comes to the table where all his humble, earthly servants have gathered. And there Jesus humbles himself. And he girds himself with an apron and a towel. And he approaches the table. And he asks each of his servant, How may I serve you? How may I serve you? On the back of your outline... Some lessons. The servants in Luke 17, they, they expected special praise, commendation, and a savory meal for merely doing their basic duty. Such servants will receive no such thing, not because their master is an oppressive slave driver, but because the servants' hearts are misguided by pride. Not because their master is an oppressive slave driver, but because their hearts are misguided by pride. And what a tragedy. And what a tragedy to want to expect things in this life. What a tragedy to want to live this life in a way that says, okay, God, I did that. Now you owe me. 
What a tragedy to go through life, to have all of our good works, to have all the good things we do in Jesus' name, and and maybe, uh, you know, all the things that we do in volunteer service and ministry for the gospel's sake. We do all of these wondrous things, and, but yet what a tragedy were we to come to God and say, see, look what I did. What do I get? What a tragedy. For what these unprofitable servants desire on earth is precisely what the master will be pleased to give in the kingdom where he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will have them come and serve them. Those who have served him on earth with excellence and distinction in all humility and reverence. Let me read that one more time. What a tragedy for what these unprofitable servants desire on earth in this life, what they want now. God, give it to me now. Look what I did for you. Can you pay up? I'm going to check out for a while. I think I did my duty, right? Come on, Lord. Like, help me out here. Give me a blessing. I think I deserve it. Look, did you see how I forgave? Did you see how gracious I was? Did you see what I did in your name? Now it's my turn. What a tragedy. What these unprofitable servants desire on earth, what they want now, is precisely what the Master, the Lord, is pleased to give, but to give it in the kingdom of God where he will gird himself and have gracious and humble servants sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Jesus will come and serve them. They who have served him on earth with excellence, with distinction, in all humility, in all reverence, Jesus according to Luke 12, will be pleased. The Father will be pleased to give us the kingdom. And Jesus will be pleased to gird his waist with an apron and and a towel around his shoulders and to come to you at the end of the age and say, now here is your reward. How may I serve you? How may I bless you? I saw what you did in my name. Now is the time for you to receive reward and honor and recognition. For what you did, meekly, humbly, when no one else was looking, when you didn't ask for anything in return in this life. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. To be clear, we're talking about reward in the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about getting in. We become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. You want to become a Christian today? Simple. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. If you believe that, you're a Christian, and you will enter the kingdom of God. But as you enter, as you enter the kingdom, there are ways in which the Lord responds to we who have on earth whether we've been faithful, whether we've been unfaithful, whether we've served him or whether we've done it begrudgingly. He looks at the heart. He looks at the spirit in which we offer up our earthly life. And the Bible is quite clear throughout the Gospels, throughout the teachings of Paul and Peter, 
and so many other places, the Bible is very clear that you will receive reward, opportunity to even lead and participate in the kingdom, but that it will be measured to you as you live your earthly life. So you can all get in. We can all get in by faith in Christ. But what happens there? (laughs) The measure with which Jesus will gird himself and come down and, and, and truly humble himself. Unbelievable. The son of God, the son of man will gird himself and come to some of us in the kingdom and say, and now it is my pleasure to serve you. Unreal. How unbelievably humbling that is that God would do that for us, for those of us who live well in this life. When I spoke last month on on this passage, I parked myself solidly in Luke 17, verse 9, in which Jesus asks, Does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. I situated myself firmly in the spirit of that verse that the master is not grateful toward the servants who merely check off their basic duties. That the master is not thankful to those who claim to follow him and yet who just look upon the duty of their life as something they check off and then they check out. They check out for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, for the rest of their life. They check out. They assume that uh, now it's God's turn to bless them. Now, now, Lord, see what I did? Come on now. Give me what's due me. And I likened this these servants, the unprofitable servants. I likened them last month as we spoke about this passage to the American church, to Western evangelicals, which by many accounts in the Western evangelical church and and the Christians that compose it, by many accounts there is a present state of malaise in both our spirituality and our Christian expression in the world. Christians today are increasingly, increasingly building their own kingdoms and not the Lord's. The narcissism of the world is growing exponentially and Christians are following suit. We care more about self-expression than talking about the Lord. We care more about talking about ourselves and expressing ourselves online than we do in talking about the Lord and talking about his gospel. The world is increasing in a sense of entitlement and Christians are following suit. An ethic of hard work is being lost and in its place is an attitude that says, I've done enough, now it's my time. I've done enough, now I'm gonna check out of life by entertaining myself, by drinking, by smoking, by whatever else, whatever other mindless pleasure I can think up. Because you know what? It's my time now. I did my duty. It's my time. A sense of entitlement. The world has told us to leave our faith in the church and not bring it into the marketplace or the town square. And Christians have followed suit. 
Our faith is relegated to Sunday mornings, unless, of course, there is some other mindless pleasure to seek that morning. And rarely, if ever, does our faith have any implication on how we live the rest of life. And that is where, that is where I earnestly desire to draw our attention to. How do we live the rest of life? How do we live out the rest of life in a world that is doing everything to corrupt our efforts? We believe in Jesus. We have eternal life. We know that there's opportunity for reward in heaven. And we desire that reward. We want that reward. We want a savory meal at the end of the age. We want to be profitable. We want to be useful. But we often don't know how. And our lack of knowledge leads us right back into the answers that the world is offering. Over the last month, I I asked for and... (laughs) often didn't even have to ask for because I received so much feedback uh, from our, our talk in Luke 17. The underlying question for most of you was simple. You would say to me something like, Pastor, okay, I, I follow you. I understand. I, I tend to agree with your uh, assessment of the American church, of, of Western Christianity and, and Christians in South Orange County and how they live and, and how they conduct themselves and the distractions that have come into their life and they just, there's kind of a malaise, a, a lethargy, an apathy. I, I, I understand that, Pastor, but what do you want me to do? What should I do? I want to go beyond just checking off the basics. I know that that God's not pleased just by me doing the core. So what more should I do? And Pastor Tom and I have been grappling with this question now for over 30 days, intentionally waiting to, to bring this series to you. I humbly submit now to all of you that the answer to your question and to mine in what should we do what more should I do the answer to that question is found in the story itself it's found in the parable look at what the servant was doing in verse 7 he was plowing He was tending sheep. He was in the field. Real common stuff, especially in the first century, not so much today. (laughs) We're like, field? What's a field? We live in Orange County. But the servant was doing the basic, everyday, routine, regular work. Nothing extraordinary, nothing magnificent. And when the sun went down and the work in the field was done, the servants would come back to the residence where they were expected to wash up, gird themselves with apron and towel, and prepare a good meal for their master. These things were their duty. It's what the master asked of them to do. It was nothing remarkable, 
Much of it was routine, even mundane, but it was their job, it was their tasks, it was their lot in life, it was what it was what was in their day and in their week and in their month and in their year. It was in full view of their eyes at all times. And the master expected them to perform it well. And when it was said in the parable, in this story, that the servants did not perform well, it seems that two reasons were given for why the master was so displeased. I've written them on your outline. Number one, they failed to carry out one of their basic duties. They forgot to make the master a meal. They failed to carry out one of their duties. They said, we're done with that. Number two, the duties they did perform in the field, plowing, tending sheep, the duties they did perform were done with only basic effort, followed by, note this, great expectation of reward, of entitlement for their paltry effort. It is not that the master expected his servants to lead in some grandiose way, to, 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 to conduct life in some life-shattering, have some life-shattering, earth-shattering event that they were to lead, that they were to, to gin up, but rather they were merely expected to do their life's work, their life's work, but to do it in the spirit and in the power of the Lord. Note this on your outline. Pleasing the master is not a matter of doing more, but of resurrecting regular life. Pleasing the master is not a matter of doing more, but of resurrecting regular life. And so today, we want to take a pause in our current series in Luke and and begin over these next number of weeks and months to look at what it would mean for Coast Bible Church to resurrect our regular, routine, everyday life. The title of this series is the rest of life resurrected. What do I mean by the rest of life? I mean things like work. You go to work every day, don't you? And if you don't go to a job that pays you every day, you've got work at home, or you've got work uh, in and around your neighborhood, or it's some volunteer uh, effort that you do. Everyone has work. Everyone has a measure of vocation. Everyday life. Another element of everyday life play, leisure, travel. What would it look like for the leisure of life to be resurrected? Another element, sleeping, resting. You do that every day, don't you? You sleep eight hours a day? No. Five? I hope at least. Every one of you sleeps and rests. I'm asking the question, what would it look like for you to take that element of life and bring into it the power of the resurrection. You look upon sleep and rest in the way that Scripture looks upon it. And by the way, rest in Scripture as a topic, more verses on rest than almost any other topic in Scripture. What about eating? 
What about exercise? What about when you're sick or when you're ill, or when you have a disease? How would you resurrect that in your life? What about when you're dealing with money, when you're exchanging commerce in business with other people, when you're, when you're buying things? What would it look like to have a resurrected view of money? What about education? When you're studying, when you're going to school, what would it look like in your marriage, parenting, neighboring, housekeeping, when you're driving in the car, when you're communicating on the internet through phone, through email, what would it look like? The rest of life, all of life, not life shattering, not earth shattering, but the plowing the field, tending the sheep, preparing the meal, the basics. What would it look like to take the rest of life and resurrect it? To look, at, to look at it all through the lens of the kingdom of God. To seek first the kingdom of God with all that I already do. It's not about doing more. That's not what we're saying. But of resurrecting your regular life. And the master expects his servants to maintain a spirit of service throughout their day. That we would not be mindless or thoughtless in our regular everyday duties, but intentional. Giving our Lord a substantive offering. A kind of service that is rich in preparation that is rich in approach, that is rich in actualization, a savory meal that we could give to God and say, God, this is my regular, my routine, but I've resurrected it for you. Believing, believing that such a resurrected kind of service will cause us to become useful to the master again. Profitable servants who, ironically, on the last day, will receive all that we were hoping for anyway. A bountiful meal and recognition from the master at the end of the age. The rest of life resurrected. That will be our topic for the next number of weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would... Let us see from your word that it wasn't because those servants um, hadn't dreamed up something great. It wasn't because they hadn't uh, done something extraordinary and remarkable. That wasn't the reason that the master was displeased, Lord. But instead, the master looked upon their life and they failed. And one of their basic duties. And not only that, the basic duties, Lord, that they did do, they did with horrible intentions and attitude and disposition. And we know what that's like, Lord. Because in our everyday routine, we sometimes have a horrible disposition toward it. At home, at work, oh, work. Our disposition is so often of a drudgerous nature. It's just a thorn, we think. And yet, God, you are 
looking upon our life and saying, would you resurrect this? Would you look at it through kingdom eyes? Would you look at it through the eyes of Christ? Would you take the regular and the routine and the everyday and everything that's right in front of us, whether work or whether family, whether illness or whether money or whether leisure or whether rest or whatever it is, God, would you help us to look at it and see in it an opportunity to resurrect it and to make it a pleasing and savory offering to you? That's our task, Lord Jesus. Help us to live resurrected everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.